This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. As far back as we're able to peer into human history, way past the written or pictorial record, into the grave sites of our most ancient ancestors, there's evidence of what you might call spiritual or religious belief. From the idea of a separate soul to animal spirits, to the anthropomorphization of trees and natural elements, pantheons of superhuman gods, and ultimately the inscrutable, sometimes indivisible gods of monotheism, We're homo credulous, creatures hardwired to believe in a deeper or higher reality that transcends the evidence of our senses. In his new book, God, A Human History, my guest today, Reza Aslan, looks at this history of belief, asking not so much why, but how we've made and remade God in our own image since our very beginnings. Welcome to Think Again. Thanks for having me. The book is called God, A Human History. We are and we are not talking about God, right? Well, it it all depends on what you mean by God. Okay. And I think one of the biggest um, goals that I had in writing this book was not just to sort of talk about the ways in which we have conceived of God, you know, way back, you know, going deep, deep into um, our evolutionary history, but also to get us to to stop having these pointless arguments about whether or not God exists and have a much more... I think, valuable conversation about what God actually is, what we mean when we say God. Right. Now, one of the points that I make very early on in the book is that more often than not, what we mean when we say God is just a divine version of ourselves. That, as you had said earlier, that we're kind of hardwired to conceive of God in our own image, to implant in God our own uh, characteristics, our own human traits, right. to essentially divinize ourselves um, in our imagination of what God actually is, and often with, as you can imagine, catastrophic consequences. Right. But I think fundamentally, yeah, that's what I would say, is I, I want us to have a much deeper conversation, because I think, honestly, we're a lot closer um, than we think we are on this topic, you know, yeah. like sometimes I'll have an argument, you know, with a with an atheist and that the atheist will say, well, I don't believe in God. And then I'll say, OK, but what do you mean by God? And then uh, sometimes they'll say something to the effect of, well, I don't believe that there's this sort of divine personality that, you know, lives in heaven and watches over us and right. rewards us when we're good and punishes us when we're bad. And my answer is neither do I. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. I mean, I I think I'm maybe co- I may or may not be coming from a I think I'm coming from a different place from you on these things, but I I find I I I feel a certain frustration because I have always been interested in these stories. I've always been interested mm-hmm. in these original texts and mm-hmm. just learning learning everything that I can about the different ways that humanity um, asks and answers these kinds of questions. And I feel like there you get this pushback sometimes um, from from rationalists where it's like even to be interested in these subjects is somehow to flirt with superstition right. or some right. And it's a shame. Uh, I think first of all, I think it's um, it diminishes the intellectual heft of these fundamental questions right. about who are we. Um, you know, what is our place in the universe? What is our relationship to the rest of creation? And also, I think it creates, I think, sometimes unnecessary conflict because the truth of the matter is that there is there's a lot more that the quote-unquote scientific and the spiritual views of the, you know, the nature of reality have in common with each other than they don't. It's just right. that they often use different names for it. 
You know, I mean, yeah. one of the one of the things that I talk about in this book is this concept of pantheism. Right. This notion um, that God is all and all is God. Well, scientists have a term for that. They call it panpsychism. Um, the idea that there is a, a universal consciousness, if you will, you know, to all um, matter. Although I think you might get some pushback from some scientists <laughs> against that concept. For like, sure, for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, you know, we have very rational conversations about monism. We have very rational conversations about even the the concept of the, the permanence of matter, right? The idea that everything that exists today has always existed and will always continue to exist as long as the universe exists. You know, there are different ways of there are different languages that we can use right. to talk about the nature of reality and some are more scientific and some are more spiritual but oftentimes if we break through the the biases that both sides have against each other what you find is a, a lot of commonality in the way that we think about the very nature of the universe Right. Well, I mean, I feel like science and certainly philosophy get very focused on narrowly defining what what is it exactly that we're talking about, you mm-hmm. know. And so when you when you start saying th- things like we are kind of talking about the same things, <laughs> I think that makes a lot of philosophers and scientists uncomfortable because they're yes. like, what exactly do you mean? I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Um, I want to unpack a little bit this um, anthropomorphizing tendency we have yeah. with with this. Your book goes, your, it covers a, a, a very long span of human history, and it's there's a you know in some ways the the early impulses as far as we can see start with the soul or the idea that there's yeah. something in us that right. persists after death, but then we go to kind of sun gods and, yeah. and, and those sorts of things. And then ultimately more human-like gods. But then in monotheism, it becomes very complex with, you know, when God becomes one, yeah. he becomes sort of less and less human in some ways, right? Yeah. So, you know, the book is about really the history of human spirituality okay, and the way in which throughout that history, there has been kind of one grand metaphor, if you will, for the divine that all peoples and all religions and all cultures and throughout all time have fundamentally relied on. And that metaphor is the human being. Right. Now, in some ways, it, this makes perfect sense, because if you're talking about the divine, you're talking about something that is utterly unhuman. And so how do you talk about that thing? How do you relate to it? Right. Um, how do you make sense of it? I mean, obviously, the the way to do so is to use ourselves as the lens through which we understand it. So here, I'm sorry, I know you were going to say more, but I want to I want to asterisk here and say sure. that, like, yet somehow we do have these very successful monotheistic religions, like um, like Judaism, mm-hmm. and, which is less successful in a sense than Christianity, if you're just looking at pure numbers, right. I guess, and Islam that want to make God extremely inscrutable and in a way and take him away from the human, right? They want to, but they don't. Okay. I think this is what's so fundamentally interesting about this conversation. Right. First of all, let's talk about monotheism for a minute here because uh-huh. regardless of how far back you trace human spirituality, and there's an enormous debate about how far back you can trace it. There's a debate about whether... You can talk about spirituality only in Homo sapiens, or is there evidence of spirituality right. in uh, you know other species of humans like the Neanderthal, for instance, or even Homo erectus? I, spoiler alert, believe <laughs> that we can go back as far, for sure as far as Homo erectus, um, when talking about... Um, the origins of the religious experience. Based on like burial practices. Based on burial practices, based on material evidence, uh, for instance, the finding of idols, um, things like that. Mm. Um, But also, you know, based on cognitive evidence. I mean, I think sometimes when talking about the origins of religious experience, we get a little bit too reliant on material finds. That, well, if we find a religious idol that's 300,000 years old, we can now say, oh, religion goes back 300,000 years. Right. Well, 
yes, but the brain required to think of that religious idol goes back way, way longer than that. And that's why I think, and I agree very much with cognitive theorists on this point, that the root of the religious experience exists in the brain. And so we need to we need to rely on the brain in order to talk about how far back religion can go. But regardless, I do think it's important to understand that over the many hundreds of thousands of years in which such a thing as human spirituality or religious experience can be said to have existed with some measure of confidence, either high or low. Right. Only about 3,000 of those years has there been any concept of monotheism. Monotheism did arise, uh, you know, in our spiritual history. It's just that when it did, it was routinely rejected and denied. It failed until it finally took hold within Judaism. And by the way, it took hold within Judaism much, much later than people think. Abraham was not a monotheist. Moses was not a monotheist. What we call monotheism, by which we mean belief in one God and the rejection of of any other God... As even existing. As even existing, right, uh, really goes back to what we we, we call the Babylonian exile. So, you know, around the, the, the 6th century BC. That's about as far back. And takes place in the political context of the Jewish people defining themselves as against captivity. Exactly. Yeah. Well, let's so let's break this down before we go any further because you bring up a really, really good point. The Jews before the exile were... Um, not monotheist. At best, they practice something called monolatry, which means that you worship one God uh, who you see as the highest God, the best God, but you acknowledge that there are other gods. Of course there are other gods. Right. Um, and we have ample evidence of this throughout the, the Hebrew scriptures. Um, you know, I would say to most people who read those scriptures that when the, the Bible says, oh God, you are the highest God. It means it literally. It literally means of all the other gods that I believe exist, you are the highest of those gods. Or you shall have no other gods before me. It's like, <laughs> right. just don't pray to them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that literally means don't have them before me. Right. That's what that means. Um And it wasn't really until the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 586 BC and the scattering of the Jewish people across the Babylonian Empire, the removal of their very religious identity, the destruction of their God, that this idea arose uh, that we now refer to as monotheism. And you said it perfectly. It's basically the answer to an existential crisis. But the reason that monotheism is so new. The reason why it failed so often goes back to exactly what we were saying at the beginning of this conversation. It's one thing to create a distinct God for each one of our human attributes, right. to have a God of love and a God of war, uh, a good God and a bad God. Right. That makes sense to the ancient mind. What doesn't make sense is every single human attribute residing in a single God. That doesn't make sense. Why? Why would one God be responsible for both good and evil? Why would one God be responsible for the darkness and the light? That's interesting, because from the modern perspective, right, we would say, you know, like looking at the anti-heroes in our modern novels and movies (laughs) and so on, right, we would say that humans, each human is complex, and we contain within us... A multitude of traits. We are all evil. We are all jealous. Whatever. Why not? You know. Right. And yet, when it comes time to constructing our conception of the divine, we as human beings have had a very difficult time yeah. accepting that same reality that that God can also be complex with with you know sometimes contradictory emotional states. Right. Now, here's what Judaism did. Judaism simply allowed, again, out of necessity, allowed for a God who is full of contradictions, right. a God who is responsible for good and for evil, as, as the Hebrew scriptures repeatedly say, a God who saves and kills, a God who has every one of our conflicting uh, multiple attributes that reside individually, you know, in in his being. 
What's fascinating about Christianity mm. is that it could not cope <laughs> with that kind of God. For Christianity, God couldn't have negative attributes. And right. so Christianity had to come up with an answer. And that answer, of course, was Satan, the devil, right. which they borrowed from Hellenistic thought and from Persian conceptions of the God of uh, in, in Persian Zoroastrianism. There is a, a good God and an evil God. Um, and that was very influential to the kind of Hellenistic Judaism that ultimately gave birth to Christianity. Islam also does very much the same thing, creates a God that is pure good, right. and then puts all of the negative attributes upon you know, the devil, the shaitan. Um, but again, it indicates, it indicates why this conception of monotheism was so hard for the spiritual mind to accept. That's really interesting. So Christianity answers that, you know, with a trinity, with the Son, and then the the Holy Spirit. It can't it can't contain that all in one. But it seems like the old Old Testament, with its really two gods squished together, right? You've yes. got <laughs> yeah, very good. You've got Adonai and uh, is it Adonai and Jehovah or or Yahweh? That's one way like, of putting it. Uh, yes, or you can just simply refer to it as El. And, and Yahweh. Elohim, right. Yeah, right, Elohim. Right. Elohim, which is the plural form of El. I mean, it seems that that sort of sidesteps the problem of evil by essentially turning evil into God's punishment. Like, whenever anything bad is happening from God in the Old Testament, it's not evil, it's just God judging the people, right? <laughs> Except that the God of the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament literally says, I am responsible for evil. Uh-huh. You know, where is that? What, 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 what evil huh. befalls a city that Yahweh is not responsible for? Oh wow! You know, there are a number of verses hmm. in the Hebrew Bible in which, you know, there is this sort of very fascinating Jewish notion that if there is only, if we're going to say this, right? right if right, we're right. going to say there is only one God then we have to accept the consequences hmm. of that belief. And the consequences of that belief is that God does good and evil. Right, right. Um, <clears throat> and it's a consequence that most religious people are not willing to accept. You said earlier on, you were like, well, maybe Judaism isn't that successful. You know, compared to numbers. I mean, you know this has something to do with it, right? Is, you know, right. there's no heaven and hell. In, in Judaism, right? That right. you die and you could be the greatest person on earth or the worst person on earth, and you both end up in the same place. Right. You may say that spiritually speaking, there's some intellectual honesty to that to that viewpoint, but it's not an appealing uh, viewpoint. Sure. What's much more appealing is good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. We can even <laughs> we can even kind of live with the more pantheistic notion of returning to some great benevolent spirit, mm -hmm. i.e. Atman for the Hindus right. or within Sufism. That's consider right. Consider yourself a Sufi. That's yeah. correct, okay. yes. So yeah, like, within Sufism is also pantheistic in that notion that, yes, right. that you are one with God. You're one with God now, but that certainly, yes, after death you return. It's the way the great Sufi poets put it is that it's like the drop of water being thrown into the ocean. Yeah, I mean, when I, right, and, and I, I always found that, I mean, going back to sort of what's comforting and what's not, I always found that a bit chilling in, in Hinduism when I mm -hmm. encountered that notion, because it's just sort of like, okay, that's great, but then I'm dissolved into this, is it a consciousness, I don't know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, is it a you, universal consciousness or not? Yeah. yeah, kind of wonderful if I have any awareness, if I even make sense in that context or what. <laughs> You know, and yeah. you could understand why again that 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 is a far less popular conception than the idea that you, as an individual, and your personality right. reconstitute itself, that you go on living, you know, just in a different realm and perhaps in a different body, yeah. but that you are who you are, and I am who I am in the next life. It's interesting because, you know, t now that we're in this con conversation about the afterlife, that's another very new conception. Uh -huh. The theory of a heaven and hell, by which I mean a place where good people go and they're rewarded right. and a place where bad people go and they're punished. 
can basically be traced to about 1100 BC. Okay. It's the result of one of the greatest uh, and most influential prophetic figures in history, uh, Zarathustra, mm-hmm. right, the great Iranian prophet, um, who, whose teachings eventually give birth to Zoroastrianism, but Zoroastrianism is quite different than what Zarathustra right. himself they actually They kind of rewrote preached. the religion <laughs> yeah, later. Yeah, which is basically how it works, right? right? A prophet shows up, preaches some things, the prophet dies, a failure, and then much, much later, people invent an entire religion based on something close to what that prophet said. Right. That's what Christianity did, it's what Islam did, it's how it works. But in this particular case, what was fascinating is that really before Zarathustra, belief in an afterlife was conceived of as essentially a continuation of the life that you live now. Right. So in other words, if you were a farmer in this life, you would die, and then you'd be a farmer in the next life. Woohoo! Yeah, if you were a warrior in this life, you would die, and you'd be a warrior in the next life. Morality had nothing to do with it. And it really wasn't until Zarathustra that this conception that no, your life on this earth is an accumulation of good and bad. And Mm -hmm. according to Zarathustra, when you die, it's essentially a scale. On one side is your good thoughts, words, and deeds, and on the other side is your bad thoughts, words, and deeds. And if the good outweigh the bad, you get to go to paradise. And if they don't, you get to go to this, I mean, he didn't call it a hell, and it certainly wasn't a place of fire or damnation or punishment, but it was a place of shadows, a a place of... um, a little you bit know. like I think of Hades, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Greeks, yeah. yeah, or Sheol, you know, as, as, mm-hmm. would, for the, as the, for Jews the Jews would say. Yeah. yeah, But again, you could see how this theology conflicts with our personalities. Right, right. Like right. We, don't, we don't want to dissolve. We don't yeah. want to dissolve. Yeah. We don't want to just be nothing. We don't want to join the universe. We want to continue being who we are right now. Right. We just want that in another world. And we want progress and hope, and we don't want to, we don't want to be stuck, you know, with whatever... Our lot in life just happens That's right. to be right. Yeah. I mean, I, now you're um, dismissive in the book of sort of rationalist explanations of where religion comes from, and also mm. kind of evolutionary explanations that that seem to explain sort of why we need it. Right. You know, I know that for me, like I have a I have a son who will be ten in in the new year. I remember very clearly the moment that he learned about death. And mm-hmm. I remember very, very clearly thinking to myself, like, damn, this would be a lot easier if I <laughs> if had I something else to say, tell him. Yeah. yeah. Everything's fine. You're going to go to heaven. You'll be great. It'll be fantastic. And, yeah. And just thinking yeah. that, like, okay, like, so that explanation made some sense to me that in the in the infancy of humanity, you know, confronted yeah. with the terrible things that we're confronted with to say, okay, like, it's kind of reassuring to, you know, our brains are good at confabulation. Yeah. We do, we do invent things right. well, you know, Yes, but well, you're kind of, you don't like well, that. Well, so let much. me, let yeah. me clarify one thing very, that's very important. Okay. Uh, I'm not dismissive of evolutionary arguments about where religion came from. Okay. I'm dismissive of evolutionary arguments about why religion evolved. Okay. And by the way, it's not just me. That is now, I would say, the primary belief of evolutionary theorists is that fundamentally religion did not provide an adaptive advantage right. to human beings. Doesn't make we us more thought social. That it did. It, yeah. Exactly. All the things that we thought that, well, it creates social cohesion in society. Well, not really, first of all, and secondly, not more than kinship. So it doesn't have a unique adaptive advantage in that regard. Or people will say, well, it lessens anxiety. And the answer is no, actually, it increases (laughs) anxiety. It creates costs, evolutionarily speaking, uh, in terms of effort and time and attention that would be better served on survival. Others would say, oh, well, it, uh, it answers, um, you know, unanswerable questions. Okay, that's true, but how is that an adaptive advantage? How is that? How, how is it that someone who has an answer to an unanswerable question about the universe, how is that going to make him survive more than someone else 500,000 years ago. Only, only if it actually did what you say the evidence says it does not do in terms of 
making people more confident, making us able to focus on the here and now as opposed to... Right, but here's the, that's another question that people give is that um, I've, some scientists have said that it creates a sense of comfort and comfortableness and confidence that would then engender greater survival, which again is there's no evidence that that's the case, that that would okay. do that. But in any case, you know, as I say in the book, running headlong toward a bison because <laughs> you don't fear it because you have confidence in the here and now actually decreases your evevolutionary fitness not increases yeah it. okay fair enough but I mean that's a spectrum right I right. mean I'm not I'm, you know well, let me let me yeah. so fundamentally here is the problem with the sort of standard evolutionary explanations for why religion exists okay. for why religion exists is that they are functionalist arguments about what religion does what it's for yes for it's us. true yeah. religion can create social cohesion yes it's true religion can lessen anxiety though often it increases anxiety yes it's true religion can provide answers yes it's true religion can create morality all those things are true about what religion does but none of them explain why religion exists or why it gave an advantage to quote unquote believing individuals and communities over non-believing individuals and communities. Right. Without getting too deeply into mm -hmm. the argument, the most sort of current and most popular answer for why religion exists that that cognitive theorists now argue, people like Paul Bloom and and others who have who have spent a lot of time sort of focusing on this on this issue, is that there is no adaptive advantage to religion. That in fact religion is very likely an accidental byproduct of some other adaptive advantage. That there are cognitive processes mm. that arose deep deep in our evolution for purposes that gave us an advantage and that as an echo of those processes, as an accident of those processes, is this fundamental and, as these scientists themselves will readily admit, universal belief gotcha. in what we would, in modern parlance, say is the soul. You don't have to call it the soul. Right. The point of it being is that there's a spiritual essence, that we are, as numer numerous studies have shown, we are born with a conception of substance dualism, a belief that our bodies are separate from our minds mm -hmm. or soul, how you know, or psyche. There's a, a hundred words for it. Right. But the point being is that there is an there is a permanence within our impermanence, that there is something beyond the material realm. The science the scientific answer to the question of why is that is it's just an accident. Mm. It's a byproduct of some other thing. But but it's not just me. I want to make it clear that that there is a, a real consensus now right. among uh, evolutionary theorists who talk about religion that there is no evolutionary reason for religion to exist. It just does. And now it's up to you. As I argue full-throatedly in the book, right. faith is a choice. It's just a choice that you make. You either believe that there is something beyond the material realm or you don't. And then the question is, if you do believe it, do you want to experience that thing? Do you want to, to know it in some way? Mm. And that's where religion comes in. That's where all these other things come in. But fundamentally, it's all about, do you believe that there is more than just the material realm or is experience nothing more than the sum of particles and and yeah, yeah. and ands. Yeah. Well, and no, and I mean, and and I think we'll come back to this uh, probably in the in the second part of the show. But I mean, I I definitely went underwent a shift. I mean, in my early twenties, if 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 I had talked to you then, I would have said I would have said there's definitely I feel there's this energy uniting mm -hmm. all things, and I you know now. 
I have to say that I still feel that it is true, but if I start mm -hmm. to like, if I start to, you know, as um, Keats put it, you know, the irritable reaching after reason, trying to like, <laughs> trying to, you know, grasp it in any way, then I have to start saying, I, I don't know what I'm talking about. Like, you know, like I, I start, yeah. right? I mean, it just well, slips away. Like, first Mercury, of all, like, I, I, I truly and honestly believe that the, that the only intellectually honest <laughs> answer is I don't know what I'm talking about. Right, right, <laughs> like, right, right, right. Like I'm speaking with confidence <laughs> here because we're doing a podcast and right. that's my job. You're right. asking me questions and I'm answering them. Yeah, yeah. And it would be ridiculous to, you know, preface every one of my statements with, first of all, I don't know what I'm talking right, about. Right, right. Second of all, <laughs> this is why I think religion is because we don't know, right? right. Um you know, I often say that agnosticism is the only truly intellectually honest response to the nature of the universe and our place in it. Right. However, my problem with agnosticism is that too often it it doesn't mean I don't know. It means I don't care. Hmm. And by the way, that's fine. I mean, you could be the Apathyism kind of person. Or something. Yeah, you could be the kind of person who's like, you know, is there a God or not? I don't care. <laughs> right. That's fine. That's a perfectly fine answer. But I do care. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but I care. Right. But I fundamentally recognize that the answer is not a rational answer. Yeah. Right. That faith is not a rational response. It's an emotional response. Right. But that doesn't make it any less legitimate. Sure, but th that's why when you when you start putting when you start attaching names to it, which I understand wanting to do in the context mm -hmm. of trying to practice and make it a part of your life, it becomes problematic. Like for me, I can much more relate to for example, you know, the experience of the spiritual or the numinous that you might get through like creative the create being in the creative zone and mm -hmm. um you know, through meditation, uh, following some, you know, like mm -hmm. Buddhist insight meditation or whatever, I'm much more comfortable in those spaces because I don't then have to put some sort of name on that experience and say, well, I believe that Allah unites all right. things. Like right. as soon as I start doing that, well, then yeah. I'm, then, then there's, pro there's issues. Absolutely. So what I always try to do is make a fundamental distinction between religion and faith, right? We, okay. we, we think that we, you know, we talk about them as though they're the same thing, right? What is your faith? We say by which we mean what is your religion? Um, they are not the same thing. Faith, as you were describing, is ineffable. It's undefinable. It's deeply personal and individualistic, and right. it is more than anything else experiential, right? It's not rational. It's experiential. Um, religion is how we talk about faith. Right. It's the language that we use to express this inexpressible experience. And that language, as all languages are, but fundamentally with religious language even more so, it's made up primarily of symbols and metaphors. Right. That's what we use. Uh, it's all a symbol. Allah is a symbol. It's a metaphor. Well, depend, Jesus depending is a who metaphor. you talk to and how they take it. Well, you know, so like, this, yeah. is the, this is the problem, is that... <laughs> What you are talking about is the problem of confusing the metaphor for the thing itself. And I think that's what the vast, vast majority of religious people do. It's what makes so much of religion, um, you know, awful. <laughs> and so many religious people I mean, I'm difficult to be around. I'm talking about the fact that I think it's contested whether the thing is a metaphor or the thing itself throughout human history. I think that, like you know, rational people can disagree, you know, like Augustine would have argued strenuously that Adam and Eve were in the garden, this kind of thing, you know, he, so, so Augustine, uh, the, the, Augustine also believed that God was a giant luminescent man, <laughs> you know, who right. lived in heaven, right, right? right? And I think that if you broke it down for him, <laughs> he would acknowledge that that conception of God that he has is a symbol, is a metaphor for God. Now, I think you're right. I, I would disagree that it's debatable about whether it is a metaphor or it is the thing itself, but I do think that what is fundamentally true about what you're saying is that for the vast majority of people and throughout all of religious history, 
not spiritual history, but but religious history, most people have taken that metaphor right. as the thing to believe in itself instead of as you know, the thing that points to the thing to believe in. Yeah. Now, in every religious tradition, there have always been those, we refer to them as mystics, who reject that notion. Right. Who uh, argue vociferously for not losing the meaning of the metaphor. Right. Who believe that religion itself is just a grand metaphor, a signpost to God, as the Sufis say. That's the tradition, spiritually speaking, that's the tradition that I draw from. But I think what you express is what I think most people express, which is that, yeah, I do believe that there is a a true experience that goes beyond my empirical senses, that goes beyond just the material world. I just don't want to have to define it or give it a name right. or then carry on all the baggage that is then required, you know, if I dare say that thing is God. Or worse, if I say that thing is Buddha nature, because now what I am saying is, okay, now I have to accept everything else that Buddhism says. And you're then then you're in a community within which it is not. I, I did not mean to say it was debatable so much as that it is debated yes. whether yes. whether these things are literally true or figuratively true, and you <laughs> yeah. have to have that conversation sometimes. Absolutely, <laughs> which Absolutely. can be a drag. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Here's another uh, very interesting yeah. tidbit. I'm yeah. full of interesting tidbits. Okay, that conversation about is it literal or figurative? Many people assume that that is, you know, the or conversation, right? That that's the that's the that's the foundational right. debate. That that uh, people used to always think that scripture was literal until the scientific revolution, and now people think that oh, it might actually be figurative. Right. Actually, the opposite is true. Hmm. Before the scientific revolution the word truth had a different definition. <laughs> you know, we think about truth as being the same, as meaning the same thing as fact, right. right? That which is true is that which can be factually verified. Right. But that's because we are products of the scientific revolution, right? It, it is, it is, it is changed the way that we think, the way that our brain even works. Right. But ancient peoples had a vastly different conception of what truth meant. Truth wasn't about facts. Truth was about emotion. Truth was about what the fundamental answers to the, the experience that people had. Like, that's that's where truth resided. Right. And so, for instance, you know, the most Christians in the first 16, 1700 years of Christianity wouldn't have conceived of thinking of the scripture in literal terms. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until we were forced to change what we mean by true huh. that then compelled conservative religious individuals to say, well, if that's the definition of true, if truth is only that which can be factually verified, then the only way the Bible can be true is if it can be factually verified. Right. And so, therefore, it must be literally true. Literalism, which is the term for this, is actually a fairly new phenomenon. Yeah, I, I think I would have thought of that as, you know, the, in the ancient world or even just, just pre-scientific revolution, the barriers between truth and metaphor were more permeable and exactly, that, and, that, yeah. and then afterward. But so it introduces a binary that we then have to deal right. with. Like, it's either true or false. Right, right, right. And that's not the case when it comes to scripture or religion or spirituality. It's not just, is it true or false? Right. And I think those who try to, on both sides of the, of the argument, who try to create that, that binary are, you know, creating conflict where, to go back where we started, yeah, yeah. conflict need not necessarily be there. And I'll say it again, it's it's a it's a dispiriting and ultimately really tedious argument. <laughs> yes, <laughs> like, <it is. laughs> Welcome to my world, Jason. <laughs> so this this brings us to the second part of the show, um, in which we are we we have sort of a grab bag of surprise videos 
that are on different topics that are just meant to spark conversation. Fun. They're brought right. from Big Things Archives. I love it. So the first one here is Max Tegmark, and it is called What Will It Take for AI to Surpass Human Intelligence? I have to confess that I'm quite the computer nerd myself. I wrote some computer games back in high school and college. And more recently, I've been doing a lot of deep learning research with my lab at MIT. So something that really blew me away and like, whoa, was when, when I first saw this Google DeepMind system that learned to play computer games from scratch. You had this artificial simulated neural networks. It didn't know what a computer game was. It didn't know what a computer was. It didn't know what a screen was. You just fed in numbers that represented the different colors on the screen kept just feeding it the score. And all the software knew was to try to randomly do stuff that would maximize that score. So, you, so I, w I remember watching this on the screen for once when Demis Asabis, the CEO of Google DeepMind, showed it and, and seeing for first how this thing really played total BS strategy and lost all the time, gradually got better and better. And then it got better than I was. And then after a while, it figured out this crazy strategy in breakout where you're supposed to bounce the ball off of a brick wall where it would keep aiming for the upper left corner until it punched a hole through there and got the ball bouncing around in the back and just racked up crazy many points. And I was like, whoa, that's intelligent. And the guys who programmed this didn't even know about that strategy because they hadn't played that game very much. This is a simple example of how machine intelligence can surpass the intelligence of its creator, much in the same way as a human child can end up becoming more intelligent than its parents. I think it's very plausible that we can make machines that cannot just learn to play computer games better than us, but that can view life as a game and do everything better than us. Let me put it this way. If you believe, as I do, that the spiritual experience is a neurological experience, that it is ultimately the result of complex electrochemical reactions in the brain. Right. And it is. The question then becomes, can you create a artificial intelligence that would experience the same electrochemical reactions? And the answer is, why not? Why not? Of course you can. So in other words, can a robot have a soul? Yes, absolutely. Right. Now, let me clarify that this doesn't delegitimize or devalue the human soul. I think that's what people get afraid of when, when they answer negatively you know, this question. That, no, you know, if a robot can feel that it has a soul, then that means that there's no such thing as a soul. But that's ridiculous. First of all, just because spirituality resides in the brain doesn't devalue it or delegitimize it in any way. Everything resides in the brain. <laughs> Everything. Right. So, of, of course, the spiritual experience would reside in the brain. To say that because spirituality resides in the brain devalues the object of that spirituality, I, in other words, God, is would be saying, well, love exists in the brain, and so therefore the object of my love uh, doesn't matter, doesn't really exist in any fundamental or, or, right. or legitimate way. Are we, I'm sorry, so are we talking about the right or not, not lack of right to objectively analyze our subjective experience here? Is that what we're saying? I mean, that essentially you can't, that the experience of having a soul, the experience of God, all of these things are subjective and personal experiences that one has to kind of follow according to one's own internal whatever logic or feeling? Correct. Okay. And that the question of whether we can replicate the right. requirements necessary for that subjective spiritual experience in an artificial intelligent, the answer to that, well, let me just say, you know, the Cylons now look like us and <laughs> they have a plan. 
<laughs> yeah, well, I mean, like, I think about this in terms of creativity, right? I mean, like, if robots, like, you know, for a while we were, all, all of us creative types were reassuring ourselves that, like, yeah. well, we've got a good, you know, 100 years left at least, and <laughs> we're, we're not even that, but, like, they'll never get there. You know, they can't do creativity. But, you know, at some point, why not? Why yep. couldn't they make beautiful symphonies? Why couldn't they make rock albums? Certainly they could make pop music as good as some of the pop music that yep. I've heard, um, probably already. Uh, and, and, and so, but then does that devalue no, human art? Yeah. Like, no, why would it? And I think the same is true for spiritual experience. Right. If awareness of the soul is a a neurological phenomenon, right? then there's no reason to think that we can't one day recreate that neurological phenomenon in an artificial being. It wouldn't devalue the belief in the soul. It's just, it's a functional thing. I guess I want to, as annoying as it is, I guess I want to press a little more on this thing of like, like what does it mean to say, I have a feeling that there is something beyond myself mm -hmm. and then I can choose to experience that. And how would that be different, right, from saying that, say, I want to feel that all things are uh, a reflection of myself and I will live in the world as if all things are a reflection of myself and I will try to understand myself mm -hmm. through my toothbrush and every other thing. I guess your answer would be, well, we all do it. We yeah. all do it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I would even say one other thing. I would say, you know, that experience of I have a feeling and that feeling is based on a set of subjective experiences plus, of course, the neurological stuff that's involved right. that convinced me that I am an eternal soul in a material body mm. and that that there is a level of reality beyond the material realm that I can connect with, that I indeed have connected with at certain points in my life. Right. There's the experiential part of it, right? How is that different than I have a child that I have these complex emotions that we'll just label love mm -hmm. for that are just a result of chemical reactions in my brain right? and my experiential aspect of it. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's not just pure biology. If you know, you have a child and then you don't see that child again for 30 years, there's no reason to think that suddenly you're going to have that, you know, that same feeling of love that you would have based on your experience of that child, nor, uh, is there any reason to think just simply because you have a child and you have an experience of that child for 10, 12 years that you're going to have that sense of deep, deep, unabiding, unconditional love that I'm sure you have for your son and I have for my sons? The question becomes, what is really, fundamentally speaking, cognitively speaking, the difference between those two emotions? Right. They are ultimately a choice, really, a choice based not on reason, right. but on experience. They both reside in the brain. They both can be traced. They both can be stimulated, you know? Right. We can stimulate feelings of affection and we can stimulate feelings of of spirituality simply by zapping, you know, certain right. parts of or our brain. Oxytocin. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So what is the difference? And my answer is there is no difference. Now, mm -hmm. I understand why someone who is deeply religious would be offended by what I just said. Right. Because they would say, no, there's a difference because there is an objective reality called God. Right. Who happens to look and feel just like I do. <laughs> um, and yeah, has my same skin tone even. Right. Um, <laughs> and the feeling that I have of that God has nothing to do with my brain or my emotions, it's just a fact. I get that belief. I just don't think it's real. I don't think that that's yeah. Well, I mean, like, like like you said earlier, you know, you're rational enough to admit the limits of what's knowable, basically, which right. is nice. Um, the last part you were saying when you were talking about love, which I think is a, actually a really useful way to think about some of this, 
is was reminding me of like when I was a kid. So my, my father and his father were scientists and my, my dad's a, a doctor, started as a, as a pharmacologist, well, in, in biopharmacology. Mm-hmm. His father is a scientist. And I remember like my affection for my pets and my sense of my relationship with my dog or my cats at some point. And my father coming along and, you know, pointing out things like, well, you know, it rubs against you to mark, you know, where <laughs> yeah. you, that you belong to That's it right, or yeah. so on. Right? right. And how, like, how, you know, even as an adult, I sort of wrestle with this, you know, I'm like, okay, so, you know, what is the evolutionary advantage for my cat of bonding <laughs> to me or whatever. Right. Yeah. And, and likewise with my son, I mean, it's obviously mm-hmm. beneficial to him and to me to bond together. And yet I would not want to live in a world where I cannot view my love for him and likewise for my cat as a separate thing <laughs> yeah, to that or in a right. separate light. You know? That it's not just a, a series of automatic responses that are hardwired into your brain. It's and I don't think that that's yeah. delusion on my part. It's simply no, not. So it's simply not an acceptable. It's not a sufficient explanation for what it's you're experiencing. It's not a sufficient explanation, yeah. and I think fundamentally, like that's that's what we're coming to in this conversation. Right, right, right. right. That in the end, yeah, right. We can map it. We can explain it evolutionarily. We can talk about the sociological and anthropological reasons for it. But in the end, none of those things, I think, in and of themselves have the power to simply explain the extraordinary experience of being alive and understanding the nature of, of reality which is why we rely on philosophers and theologians. You know, their answers are subjective. But maybe in this case, subjectivity is all we've got. I think that's a great place to leave it. (laughs) Reza Aslan, it's been great having you on Think Again. Thanks so much for a wonderful conversation. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. And that wraps up another episode of Think Again as we move closer and closer inexorably toward the Thanksgiving season, which I hope that you're looking forward to. This will be my first Thanksgiving as a pescatarian. So I don't know, I might have to go traditional kind of Native American pilgrim and find some sort of fish entree. At any rate, I hope that you're enjoying the show. And if you want to come and talk and nerd out with us uh, about ideas on the internet, Come join us uh, over at Facebook at Friends of Think Again, a Big Think podcast. It's our private group. All you have to do is go over to Facebook and search for us and ask to join. And if you don't seem like a malicious advertising spam bot, I will welcome you in. And we'll be back next week with something completely different. And I hope that you can join us then. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.